Hello everyone and welcome back to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, A Reader's Guide. This is episode 2 on section 4 of the first book of Thus Spoke Zarathustra, On the Despisers of the Body. So two episodes ago, when I was talking about Unbelievers in a World Behind, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the type of human who needs to invent a world behind, a god, a reality that is perfect so that they can cast doubt and derision upon this real world that we live in. And the conclusion that Nietzsche makes is that it's a fundamentally sick type of human being who needs a god that is pure good, pure love, in an unchanging form in order to feel comfortable living this life so that they think after they die they can go and be part of pure love, pure good, pure joy when they die and go to heaven. In the last episode, the first part of On the Despisers of the Body, we talked a bit about some of the psychological tricks that human beings as conscious animals who are capable of reasoning and capable of language have used to support the conclusions that there is a world behind. Uh, we talked about the belief in reason and the belief in language as capturing a part of reality that actually takes us closer to that world behind. That our ability to describe something with adjectives, with characteristics, helps us think that we've in some way captured an eternal part of the universe that our limited senses cannot experience. Uh, to use the example that I've used a number of times, I see something as green, I understand that my eyes aren't capable of fully comprehending what reality is seeming to show to me, but I can take my paltry version of green that I can see with my limited ocular evidence and abstract about it and think about it and think about how wonderful it really is. And this is an example that we're going to see in Nietzsche many times of what he would say is human reason batting its wings against eternal walls. That there are just certain things that humans can't get beyond our ocular evidence or ability to hear things, see things, taste things, or ability to understand things. A, a wall of misunderstanding or non-understanding that the human spirit cannot get beyond and the tendency of humans has been to deify the thing that we cannot understand. And to some extent, it makes a lot of sense that when you think about it, we're part of this fantastic, wonderful thing that seems to be self-regenerating or self-generating and has given birth to life. I, I think that the, the desire to worship such a thing is a pretty natural pretty natural reaction to something so miraculous but the type of person going back to what Nietzsche said two lectures ago the type of person who just focuses on the good focuses on love focuses on how blissful everything is is a fundamentally suffering type of person and Nietzsche in trying to get us to wrap our heads around the fact that reality is this moving entity that is fundamentally will to power, he's trying to help us understand that the will to power includes both good and evil. The book he wrote right after, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, 
being called, of course, Beyond Good and Evil. So in the previous lecture, I described how human reason and human language leads us to make certain conclusions regarding the nature of reality, and when combined with a type of person who is suffering and doesn't like the, the negativity of life, how that easily leads to making false conclusions about the nature of reality, about how it's so good and so wonderful and we ought to be so good and so wonderful to each other because in some sense we're all equal. And then in combination with the further fact that language tends to make us think about equalities and things being identical when they really aren't, uh, we tend to make further mistakes that guide our ethics in a direction that fundamentally goes against the real flow of reality as Nietzsche is trying to describe it. So in today's lecture, I'm going to talk a bit more about this overemphasis on reason, this overemphasis on the spirit and the mind, and how ignoring the impulses of the body and shaming them have led humanity down the wrong path and how Nietzsche is essentially trying to reverse some of those things so that we can get back to a healthy animality, as he might put it. So I left off last section, as I mentioned, talking about how people believe in reason and people believe in the spirit and how people tend to see the human body as a bifurcated entity uh, of body and mind, and how due to our body's inability to understand reality, people have tended to focus on the spirit, we've tended to focus on our minds, and tended to focus on logic and reason as the things that distinguish us from the animals and make us special. And to some extent that's true, but if you remember, I also described how People for thousands of years have tended to focus on logic and reason and language as having captured elements of reality rather than their true function, which is more of a helping human beings perform functional activities in an environment that is essentially always trying to kill them. Uh, so the example I used last time was you're looking at a flower and you think, wow, this thing's so green and so pink. I wonder how did that happen? How's this growing out of nowhere? And wow, it's so pink, I wonder how pink it is, what's the platonic form of pink look like, and wow, this is so great. Whereas really, that seems to be a bit of a fetishization of the categories of reason, where we take this thing that is pink and seems pink to us, and we try and idealize it, and think about how cool it is in reality that we can't understand. Whereas realistically, language developed and reason developed to help creatures such as us make ethical decisions about how to operate in the world. And so it's a seemingly minor distinction, but it really does change how you view the nature of how your own mind works and how we conceptualize things. So for thousands of years, um, since Plato essentially, humans have focused on reason. And since they think that we have been able to get closer to an understanding of reality, closer to an understanding of God, and we concluded incorrectly that God is this wonderful good creature, the second step is deriding the body. Because the body, this animal part of us, the, the non-divine part of us, unlike the spirit, the mind, which is divine, this animal part of us 
seems to want danger. It seems to want sex. It seems to want war. It seems to want aggression. And since our conceptual view of the reality is one that is so good and lovely and perfect, wow, it's so pink, wow, it's so green, uh, the natural instinct has been to see the body as the opposite of good. It's to see the body as evil, something that needs to be tamed. And so for thousands of years in the Western world under Christianity, there's been this massive overemphasis on developing the spirit and, and trying to understand reality and trying to understand God. And through the generations that has created this over-spiritualization, which is which has led to, amongst other things, the scientific way of thinking, that this desire for honesty, this desire for truth, actually, interestingly enough, led to this scientific view of thinking. And along with that came this very self-flagellationary view of the body, where this, this house of sin, and it's dirty, and it's filthy, and it leads to all these horrible things that are not divine in any way, we've seen this, this overemphasis on reason and this underemphasis on our bodies and what our bodies tell us. And Nietzsche doesn't like that. And Nietzsche thinks that everyone's got it completely backwards. That instead of seeing the spirit and the mind as what brings us closer to God and the thing that should be focused on, Nietzsche sees it the other way. He sees reason in the mind and logic as being this developmental thing that has helped humans interact with a very confusing world. And he sees the mind and reason as an emergent property of the body. And not just that, but also he sees the body and our human desires and our animal desires as the source of value themselves. And this is, uh, this is something that I, I experienced myself uh, being an intellectual person. Um, I always, when I was growing up, thought, oh, you know, you, you got to focus on what makes you human. You got to focus on what makes you better than the animals, which is your brain, your mind, and try and be as smart as possible. And so I quite unconsciously went down many of the same paths as other intellectual people, and I began to view my body as this sort of meat bag that carried around my brain and I saw my brain as the most important thing and I started to really consider everything in the world from a very intellectual perspective and then when I started to focus on questions of what do I want to do what makes me happy uh, what will I have to eat um, a couple things happen which seems to happen quite frequently with the brain one is that questions that you ask yourself can be just about as complicated as you want them to be. So there's no necessarily easy way of regarding a question and trying to figure out from an intellectual perspective how much thinking is enough to give you a satisfactory answer. So an example of that is even something as simple as going to a restaurant and saying, oh, do you want chicken or do you want beef? And so you sit there and Obviously, the answer is you listen to your body and figure out what you want. But if you think you're cunning and think you're this rational creature and you, you, you try and live according to this intellectual life, you might be an idiot like I was and instead look at it from an intellectual perspective. And so the first level of analysis might be something 
along the lines of, oh, well, you know, uh, beef has a lot of fat in it. Chicken is maybe a bit better for me. Oh, but I had beef uh, three weeks ago and I had chicken yesterday, so maybe I want beef. And then you can keep making that problem if you're an intellectual person and you want to really figure out what the right answer is. You can make the problem way more complicated than you're actually capable of solving. So you need to ask yourself, okay, maybe this is the second level analysis. What, what is my diet trying to do for me? Am I trying to bulk up? Am I trying to add more iron to my diet? Am I trying to lower my cholesterol? What target am I aiming at intellectually? And then you start to break down the question of, okay, well, you know, beef is a bit higher in iron and it's maybe got a bit more uh, saturated fat in it than chicken. And, you know, I think, my, I think my diet should be to put on a bit more weight. But then you start asking the third question, well, what the, how do I put on more weight? What kind of weight do I want to put on? Am I, am I exercising enough? Am I doing that the right way? And all of a sudden you can see that rationality, because you're a smart person and you, you overemphasize the rational aspect of things, it can quickly get out of hand with more and more questions and more and more variables as you want to get more and more into it. So that's the first problem with rationality from a practical perspective. At some point, you can make any problem as complicated as you want to be, and the answers aren't obvious. You're relying upon your rationality, which evolutionarily speaking is much much younger than the rest of your body it's uh you know a couple million years old whereas the rest of your biology is pretty much figured out and it's been figured out for hundreds of millions of years if not longer the second problem with rationality and i sort of alluded to this in the last lecture and i've alluded to it in this lecture as well is the tendency to of uh, the tendency of rationality to equalize things and and take out their value take out their natural natural self-worth um, and the way that it does that at least in my experience is when you have a word for something say flower you you tend to be lazy and just assume that all flowers are the same or they share some common traits and it's true that they do share some common traits but uh, when you have this category of flower or this category of green, you tend to assume a lot more similarity between the things than you do difference. And when you do that, it's not very easy, rationally speaking, to distinguish between options that might be put in front of you. So you have a word for something, you think you understand it, and then because you're lazy, you tend to just assume that everything inside that category is similar enough. And since you're lazy and you don't want to have to think about it because there's too many damn variables and it gets way out of hand, there is a tendency to just assume, oh, what does it matter? I'll have the chicken. Like, it's still a meat product. Okay, like, I'm, I don't want to think about what my diet's doing. I don't want to think about what I had yesterday. Just just give me whatever. This is a tiring exercise. And so you get a bit tired, you get a bit exhausted, and you just rationally get lazy and put things under the same category. Additionally, when you approach things in a rational manner, uh, and this is definitely true of science and the scientific method, which, as I said, emerged out of sort of a Christian way of seeing the world. There, science does not allow itself to pass judgment on facts. 
Science is trying to determine the objective truth of things. And science and rationality go hand in hand in that, where, where they do not allow themselves to pass moral judgment on what is being studied, on what is being considered. Science forbids itself from commenting on the desirability of one thing or another. It is simply looking for quote-unquote truth. And it sees morality and what one ought to do and the value of things and the nature of things as being something that it cannot answer. And there's been this tendency in the, in the Western world as this development of the scientific mindset and this search for objective truth has developed to, for people to more and more think about things in those terms where we're just trying to figure out what's true moral ethical statements fall beyond the realm of things that can be determined to be true or not and so therefore this this scientific way of thinking has crowded out the moral ethical value-laden way of thinking and so if you're a rational person and you're thinking about chicken or beef and you don't think that there's a god and you don't think there's anything around you, you can become very nihilistic and say, well, everything just sort of exists. Uh, maybe I get hungry because I'm a human being, but what the hell does that really matter? That doesn't seem to be anything very important in this cold, dead universe where I'm just a speck of dust on a speck of dust being thrown around this star in a vast, empty wasteland. What does it matter whether I have chicken or beef? It's all the same thing. I'm going to die at the end of the day. Nothing has any meaning or value. And this rational way of thinking where, you know, you don't think there's some big man in the sky and, you know, maybe reality does some cool things, but really that's just science. Really, that's just physics and chemistry. And we, we understand all that stuff. Uh, again, the tendency of humans to believe they understand something when they have a word for it. <laughs> Just as an aside, I love this example. I, I, I love how, you, if you ask someone, how does the earth go around the sun? And you really ask them, like, please explain to me, how does, how does this big giant ball that we're somehow stuck to go around the sun? They'll look at you like you're an idiot. And... They'll sort of give you this puzzled look and think that you got two heads or something. They'll say, oh, because of gravity. Like, what's wrong with you? And so you nod your head. You're, yeah, yeah, gravity, gravity. But people actually have no idea what the heck that means. Like, okay, gravity, great. But gravity seems to be this force that objects with mass literally bend and warp space-time so that objects that otherwise are traveling in a straight line are still traveling in a straight line but it's space that is warped around this massive object that literally bends the reality around you so you're still going in a straight line but since space is curved you start going in a circle and and people say oh it's gravity of course what's wrong with you how do you not know why we go around the sun and you're just sitting there thinking you have a word for this thing but you have no idea what you're talking about you don't understand it that's, that's bizarre. How do big things warp space? What does that even mean? And so, this scientific way of thinking that, you know, we have a word for something, we have an explanation for that, um, similar to a lot of things that we, a lot of sentiments that we heard in Zarathustra's prologue when, when 
he was discussing the last human about how we have invented happiness and we already understand everything and just shut up and have a drink and, you know, go about your life and don't do anything too much. All these things, as you can see as we get into this book, are coming together in this rational way of thinking where, you know, you're, you're trying to consider a reality that is so complex and you can't understand all the variables. And then based on the nature of reason and categorizing things in a, in a lazy way, which is really smart economically speaking or physiologically speaking so that you can make decisions that more or less help you we've fetishized rationality and said oh well this is the only way to live this is the only way we got to consider rationally what our approach is and then things get way too complicated you lose the forest for the trees instead of just listening to your body and saying hey i really feel like beef you start charting this big huge flow chart problem that you can't understand and when you do that, you start. You can tire yourself out and get upset and just say, oh, what does it matter anyway? There's no point to the universe. It doesn't matter whether I have chicken or beef. And this over-reliance on rationality has led to this bizarre nihilistic situation where we ignore our biology for the sake of our minds, essentially based on this 2,500-year-old premise that our minds are the most important thing and bring us closer to reality, which in certain ways it's true, they bring us closer to reality, but they don't help us really understand it at the end of the day. It helps us guide our biology towards making ethical decisions. And so in the Western world, this mind-body dualistic split has been catastrophic. I mean, in some ways it's been very beneficial, and Nietzsche points this out in other works, that, you know, this, this overemphasis on spirituality and really thinking about reason and the mind in an effort to understand reality and God has led to science and led to much progress in human lives. But on the other side, it's also led to vast confusion on the part of everyday people. It's led to nihilism, it's led to fascism, it's led to communism. Uh, all these things have sort of emerged out of this bifurcation of the mind and body. And so Nietzsche in this book, he, he's essentially bucking the trend in this section of the last 2,500 years of philosophy. And he's trying to, to bring us back to the body. And so I didn't get into it last time, but I will now, where Nietzsche says, quote, but the awakened one, the one who knows, says, body am I, through and through, and nothing besides. And soul is merely a word for something about the body. The body is a great reason, a manifold with one sense, a war and a peace, a herd and a herdsman. A tool of the body is your small reason too, my brother, which you call spirit a small tool and toy of your great reason. I, you say, and are proud of this word, but the greater thing in which you do not want to believe is your body and its great reason. It does not say I, but does I. What the senses feel, what the spirit knows, that never has its end in itself. But senses and spirit would like to persuade you that they are the end of all things. That is how vain they are. Tools and toys are senses and spirit. Behind them there yet lies the self. The self seeks with the eyes of the senses too. It listens with the ears of the spirit too. 
Always the self listens and seeks. It compares, compels, conquers, destroys. It rules and is also the eye's ruler. Behind your thoughts and feelings, my brother, stands a mighty commander, an unknown wise man. His name is Self. In your body he dwells. He is your body. There is more reason in your body than in your finest wisdom. And who knows to what end your body needs precisely your finest wisdom. Your self laughs at your eye and its proud leapings. What are these leapings and soarings of thought to me, it says to itself. A detour to my purpose. I am the leading reins of the eye and the prompter of its conceptions. The self says to the eye, feel pain here, and then it suffers and thinks about how it might suffer no more. And this is what it is meant to think. The self says to the eye, feel pleasure here. Then it is happy and thinks about how it might be happy again. And this is what it is meant to think. To the despisers of the body will I say a word. That they despise, that makes for respecting. What is it that created respecting and despising and value and willing? The creating self created for itself, respecting and despising. It created pleasure and woe. The creating body created spirit for itself as a hand of its will. So I'm really blown away by this section. Uh, it, it has echoes of many things that you often hear in Eastern religions, although you also hear it in Christian mysticism, the difference between the ego and the self, and how uh, in those religions at least, the self is the thing that is godly, and the ego is this sort of devilish trickster thing that prevents you from understanding your oneness with reality. Nietzsche is a bit different. Um, as we'll see later, he's actually a big fan of an ego. He wants people to have a big ego, but he wants it to be a healthy ego. And the ego is essentially the mental conception you have of yourself. It's the your spirit being self-reflective. So when you're walking around and you're thinking, oh, what am I going to do today? What should I do? What should I do? That's your, that's your ego talking. A lot of people might be more comfortable with the, the sort of negative interpretation of ego of, oh, that guy's got a big ego. He's walking around like he owns the place. Um, whereas for Nietzsche, he, he's, he's more specifically thinking about our, our spirit and our soul and our mental activity and the mental self-conception we have of ourselves and the mental, uh, the mental goals that we set for ourselves, the mental ways of thinking that we have set for ourselves and the, the intellectual capacities that we have. And so he's saying in this whole section that your soul and your spirit is something about the body. It's something that your body created as a hand of its will, that this, this biological entity that is in its essence will to power, this, 
sort of self-expanding, self-bootstrapping biological system that through time can become more capable, that random swamp monkeys millions of years ago that evolved into bipeds that learned how to use fire, that essentially that long process was a development of the will to power of a biological entity that needed to create further capabilities for itself to deal with an ever more complex biology, environment, social structure, uh, everything that it was involved in, the, the biological organism through time evolves to create more capable versions of itself. And that because of our understanding of reason and our ability commun to communicate and our ability to use language, we can then come up with this concept of self. We can become self-conscious and think of ourselves as a separate entity, and that's sort of where the ego comes from, considering yourself a separate intellectual entity. And in some ways you are a separate entity, in some ways you aren't. But Nietzsche is essentially saying here that, you know, for 2,500 years we've been so emphatically in love with the idea of mind-body duality and how much we love the mind and love the ego but the ego is something that your body simply created and really the relationship between body and ego is completely backwards that for 2500 years we've been fetishizing this this very newly developed biological aspect of ourselves uh, the the prefrontal cortex the things that make us the rational animal, we've, we've fetishized that, but it's really, it's really the rest of our biology that is millions, if not billions of years older than our rational minds that run the show. That our, our self, our body, and the drives of our body, and even many of our, many of our unconscious motivations and unconscious reactions to things are much wiser and smarter than our rational brain. There's a reason that we don't control our heartbeat. There's a reason that we don't control our, our, if we touch something hot and jump away from the stove, that those spinal reactions, those very basic biological reactions that we, we take to survive, need to be so hardwired into us that they happen automatically, that they're, your hypothalamus are very deep parts of your brain that have been around and perfected by evolution for hundreds of millions of years. Those things are really in control, and those are the things that really guide us and keep us alive and keep us interested in new things, keep us uh, from being bored, keep us uh, just moving and trying to develop. And it's really this rational mind that's come up and fetishized reason and fetishized language and fetishized the mind and led us down this weird path of abstraction and equalizing things and not not really believing in differences in value and not really believing in differences between things or people or places or flowers or whatever that this whole our bodies are really the source of all all motive action in Nietzschean terms or anyone out there who's a big Nietzsche fan it's the more Dionysian part of us compared to the more intellectual Apollonian part of us and Nietzsche believes yeah he 100% believes he's a very rational guy he 100% believes that reason is important that unlike Christianity unlike Plato unlike so many philosophers over the last 2,000 years reason is not at the top of the hierarchy of things that we should value 
Uh, reason devalues itself. Reason is the thing that led to people not believing in the value of the world, people questioning God, people questioning our ability to create values, people becoming nihilistic because reason led us to kill our own God, essentially. And so Nietzsche in this section is talking about how everything, your mind, your senses, they serve your body. And your body, the thing that is so much more biologically developed and evolved, is the thing that is the leading reins of your eye, of your ego, of your thinking. That when something upsets you, it's not that it's some intellectual, gray, dry thing that's upsetting you. It's an event is upsetting you. It's being filtered through your conscious mind, although many things happen to you that you're unconscious of and will just sort of bother you in the background, and that this much bigger, much older part of your biology is constantly working to try and figure out where its own advantage lies and how to further expand into the future. And Nietzsche ends off this section talking about the despisers of the body, the people who don't like the body, the people who overemphasize the mind and hate their bodies. And similar to what we heard two lectures ago, where it's a certain type of failed human who comes up with a god, a certain type of unhappy person who's just bitter and resentful and needs to, needs to invent a world that is pure love to cast doubt on this world, in this section, too, Nietzsche says they're the despiser of the body, there's something wrong with them. And he says, To the despisers of the body will I say a word. That they despise, that makes for respecting. What is it that created respecting and despising and value and willing? The creating self created for itself respecting and despising. It created pleasure and woe. The creating body created spirit for itself as a hand of its will. Even in your folly and despising, you despisers of the body, you are serving yourself. I say to you, yourself itself wants to die and turns away from life. No longer can it do what it wants the most, to create beyond itself. That is what it wants the most. That is its entire fervor. But it has now become too late for that. So yourself wants to go under, you despisers of the body. Yourself wants to go under, and therefore you became despisers of the body. For you are no longer able to create beyond yourselves. And therefore you are now angry with life and the earth. An unconscious envy lurks in the squinting glance of your despising. I do not walk your way, you despisers of the body. You are for me no bridges to the overhuman. Thus spoke Zarathustra. And so he's saying here that your body, the, the, the thing that evolved to feel pleasure, to feel pain, to will, to be creative, to be able to think, to be able to speak, this biological entity that continually wants to add on new capabilities so that it can expand itself further into reality, that it's a type of person who can't do that anymore, who's either incapable due to the environment that they're in, who's incapable due to uh, just lack of, lack of willpower, who's incapable due to 
generations of being of losing the ability to actually do things because they haven't used their capabilities whatever it is he's saying that those types of people are the ones who hate the body because the body wants to grow it wants to develop and i'm not going to get into it in this lecture and i probably won't get into it in this whole podcast but there's a wonderful quote that nietzsche has in the genealogy of morals it's a beautiful line, and you can think about it for a long time, where he says that the body would rather will nothingness than not will. That willing and trying to create and trying to do something is such a fundamental part of what it means to be a human, that we would rather will death and destruction than not will anything. And so with that, I think I've done a decent job. This was a bit more of a passionate, just sort of me following my, my excited ideas wherever they seem to lead. But I'm really happy with how the last three lectures now have gone. Uh, it was very difficult to try and understand how to best approach explaining Nietzsche's view of God and the type of person who creates it. And then in this section, now broken into two episodes, the role of reason and language and rationality in leading to the scientific way of thinking, leading to a valueless way of thinking, leading to nihilism, and how an overemphasis on the mind-body split can be a very destructive thing to humans who, who fall into that trap. It can also be a very powerful thing, as, as we've seen with how the Christian mindset led into the scientific way of thinking. But as with Nietzsche, who doesn't really believe in opposites and who lives in a world beyond good and evil, often the most powerful things contain within them great good and great evil. And so anyhow... With that, I'd like to wrap up this section and the discussion of how really the thing that's most important and the thing that we should listen to more and not just throw reason out the window, but take it into account when we listen to it is our bodies. Our bodies will tell us what we want. If you want chicken or beef, your body will tell you. And of course, you got to be a bit smart about it. Well, I'm becoming really fat, so maybe I should have a salad instead of chicken or beef. Um, but thinking too much about something is not always the answer. A lot of the times, the answer is in your body. You can tell what you want, and you have to go get it, and you use your brain as a tool to help you navigate through time and space in order to get that. So thank you, everyone, for joining. I know it's been a long couple of lectures with many strange ideas that we've come across. But I think that those will be really good and really helpful in helping us understand the rest of this book. Again, just like the other sections Nietzsche chose to write at the beginning of his book, these ones are very important for an understanding of the rest of the book and helping us approach the rest of the book with with the first building blocks of understanding Nietzschean thought and how he views the world. 
So thank you, everyone, and I will talk to you next time. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. I really hope you enjoyed the show today. If you know anyone who you think might like this, your friends, your family, your loved ones, coworkers, anyone who you think might be interested in the message, feel free to share with them. It's very helpful to me, very helpful to the show, and gets out some of the hopefully good ideas that we're trying to spread. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, very hateful things to say, you can reach me on my website at alexdrake.ca. I'm also on Twitter at, at alexjdrake. Um, feel free to subscribe in iTunes, rate in iTunes. Anything you can do to help the show is great, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks.